0: Welcome to God's Planning, contemplative preachers, contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic.
1: Hi there, welcome to God's Planning. This is Father Jacob Bertrand, and I am joined with Father Gregory here at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C. How are you doing, Father? Uh, let's see.
0: I'd say I'm doing groovily. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'd say well to quite well. Mm-hmm. We're here at the end of January. Mm-hmm. Uh, another month has come and it has nearly gone. Time passes, time flies, and uh, we're being renewed all the day here. So celebrating Mass and studying away and traveling for fun reasons. You have anything fun this past uh, this past month, January? Time of time of exciting travels. Uh, not
1: terribly exciting travels in January. Mm. Uh, you and I were the only real yeah fun travel I guess in in January was uh, way at the beginning just for the new year when you and I were in Phoenix, Pahonix, as people <laughs> might say for for SLS. But otherwise, my you know it's been it's been kind of uh, just just being in DC, working here in DC. But as the month is coming to an end, February begins kind of the the manic season of Mm. of traveling again so you know you have a vocation weekend lined up vocation weekend is in about two weeks from now middle of february it's the perfect weekend it is valentine's day weekend begins on valentine's day so (laughs) you got to make a choice didn't we come to a vocation weekend on valentine's day the same one many years ago yep incredible we both chose and actually one of our classmates i think was supposed to come uh and chose to stay stay back to go on a date, which turned out to be terrible, at Lame. least according to him. So unbelievable! Everybody's a loser except us because yeah, we choose didn't do love.
0: That. Choose the Dominicans.
1: Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, today being the 30th of January, we have just uh, celebrated on the 28th, just two days ago, the feast of Saint Thomas Aquinas, which for Dominicans is it's a relatively big deal. I'd say you know, it's quite a big deal. It's pretty, yeah.
0: It's pretty important. Actually, I once read a book about St. Thomas Aquinas. It was written by a Dominican, but the dust jacket was written by the publisher, and it began with this description. It said, "St. Thomas Aquinas, twelve twenty-five to twelve seventy-four, mm. the founder of the Dominican oh, order." Oh no! <laughs> mm, yep. So, in, so how, in some circles, I mean, he's the most important.
1: <laughs> see, you know that just kills me because, I mean, we call the order of preachers the Dominicans. Um, for St. Thomas, for, the Dominicans. Oh, good Lord, <laughs> bless his heart. Uh, so, why you know St. Thomas? Obviously, you know an, an important part of our um, of the order of our life. Um, why don't we? Why don't yeah? Tell us, Father Gregory, how it is that you at least first came to know St. Thomas, uh, and, and kind of how that how that went. Was it mm. was he a big draw for you for the order? Was he not? Mm. Was he not? Was Have you always been a budding Thomist?
0: Wow. I would say um, I have always... No, I went to public school, so I didn't even know who St. Thomas Aquinas was for many years. Actually, my mother had a Catholic bookshop. My mother and father both. It made no money, but it made a lot of friends. And uh, so I guess I'd come across the name of St. Thomas Aquinas on the shelves, but I was not especially engaged with the church's intellectual tradition in high school. I was mostly worried about other things. Uh, but in college, so I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville. Q um, requisite. Wait, you became a Dominican and you went to a Franciscan school. Comment. Massive Moving on. Um, <clears throat> so I went my second semester of my freshman year to a lecture given by a professor named Eleanor Stump, and she spoke about Aquinas on the nature of love. And I don't even I don't even remember why I went to the lecture. I'm not I'm not the biggest man for attending every extracurricular event. But this one drew me for reasons I can no longer recall. And as she went through St. Thomas on love, just kind of basic things like love is a passion or love is a movement of the will or love is charity. And then she talked about how love uh, takes different shapes depending on your relationship, things like that. I was just blown away. I was blown away by the clarity and by the precision uh, and by how it spoke to my experience, but, but specifically gave expression to my experience in a way that I would never have come up with given a million years because it just far exceeded the compass of my imagination and of my capacity to self-describe or even access reality. So I was just I was really taken with uh, with this Saint. Thomas fellow and so I went to my mother's Catholic bookshop. I think I was working at her store during the break for a period of time just to make money because my mother was merciful and she just employed me irrespective of my blackluster <laughs> talents as a proprietor <coughs> and I picked up a book called The Quiet Light which is about St. Thomas Aquinas, written by Louis de Waal. Truth be told, it's like historical fiction, uh, super charming. It's mostly about his sister Theodora and her love interest, Sir Piers Rood. But there's enough in there about St. Thomas Aquinas for me to just really fall in love with him and be very impressed by him as a saint. So the way that he loved the Lord, I found, had a great resonance for the way that I hoped to love the Lord one day were I ever to get my act together or my button gear and, uh, and that was that. So I just started reading St. Thomas, and since then, can't stop, won't stop, never stop stopping. How about you?
1: How'd you come to know St. Thomas? Uh, you know, in many ways, pretty similar. I, too, went to public school and didn't know who St. Thomas was. My mother, you know my mother, but she did not own a Catholic bookstore. <laughs> She's not a lady to own a Catholic bookstore. God love her. Uh, but uh, in college, I the first time I remember reading Thomas was, I think it was in a human existentialism class at school, in college. And we weren't... I think that's the case. I don't remember for sure. But what I do know is that I wrote a paper on on faith comparing Thomas's account of faith and uh, Kierkegaard's account of faith and um, sort of criticizing Kierkegaard for getting it wrong, but then using Thomas to show that Kierkegaard was wrong, but also completely not understanding Thomas and reading like half of a question from the Summa. And <laughs> that was kind of it. Um, I actually i i have my papers from college nice. and i read it probably i don't know maybe a couple years ago and i was sitting i was embarrassed to read it <laughs> so you know sitting by myself it was like you know i wanted to finish it but it was a rough go it was yeah. a rough go at it. so that was the very first intro and then when i started looking at the order it wasn't because of thomas because i didn't really have the introduction but um as i got to know the order i got to know saint thomas and then certainly from studying, also. Uh, when I got when we got to the novitiate, I don't know if you remember, but our, our novice master imposed the rule that we couldn't read the summa in the novitiate. That was because of me, because I had the goal of reading the summa in a year. And he <laughs> saw me sitting at my desk reading the summa and he, he said, no, no, nope, <laughs> no, you can't read that. I didn't so, realize you were the source of this I was vainful the source, rule. So sorry for all the, the punishment that I inflicted. Um it's all right. I read a lot of Chesterton that year. There you go. Perfect. I read... Yeah, fiction. Most of the year, so it was perfect. Hey, and edifying spiritual things. Don't worry, don't worry. Uh huh. So St. Thomas, he is uh, sort of like a monster theologian. Mm. I think you know you can either love him, you can hate him, but you can't deny his contribution. Sunday, 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 monster Thomism. I don't know what that is. Not not either. Sorry. Okay. Uh, So let's, but let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about St. Thomas's place, uh, you know, in the church's history. St. Thomas, um, kind of where he comes on the scene what he does that's different why why does he stand out um why why is he at least um with respect to the work is his corpus not his um yeah why, why does he stand out in the church's yeah.
0: history so st thomas comes at an important time in the church's life oftentimes church history is divided into three sections so the patristic period Some people will end this with the death of St. John Damascene in 749. And then you have the medieval period, which goes typically up until the Renaissance. And then you have the modern period, which would be like Renaissance Reformation through to the present. And people will draw distinctions within those three, but they form a nice enough division of the past 2,000-ish years. And the first period, the patristic period, is a time when uh, the fathers of the church... Are engaging richly with scripture they're surfacing questions and they're beginning to answer to the principal doctrinal disputes so they're you know kind of sussing out what it means for the lord jesus christ to be god and then what it means for him to be man and they take centuries to hone in on the vocabulary and on the grammar of how such a thing could possibly be not explained but at least enunciated but it's a time of you know again being very close to the scriptures and and kind of formulating the tradition as it were so it's it's about the handing on of the faith it's about guarding the deposit of faith and then medieval period is a time of great synthesizing and systematization so you have men who come in the generations before saint thomas who are trying to identify all the different seeming contradictions in scripture <clears throat> and they're trying to kind of craft a theology as a way of navigating these difficulties these different puzzles um, and of giving a coherent explanation of the whole of the faith, which can be articulated as it as it hinges together. And St. Thomas comes at an especially excellent time, and he does what his contemporaries sought to do best. Uh, so he's the greatest of systematizers. So he's a very subtle reader of Scripture. He's a great synthesizer of tradition. He's a great recipient of the fathers of the church and of the church councils. But he himself is also wise. So he sees all of these things. He sees the principles and the conclusions. He sees the conclusions and the principles. He sees them in, in terms of their highest causes. And he sees them as if by a participation in the very mind of God. So St. Thomas is smart and he's holy. He has a vision that seems to sympathize with God's very providence. It's as if he sees the things in their source, in God himself, as they are well disposed and as they conduce unto salvation. So St. Thomas is is pointed to in subsequent generations as a great teacher of the faith, as a model of how to do theology and philosophy, for one, but also as a model of sanctity, um, and then as one who gives us access to the church's tradition in a very beautiful and disciplined way so that we can become students of theology, not just slavish repeaters of what St. Thomas says, but rather that we can learn to read the scriptures, the fathers, the church councils, that we can learn to read the Lord Jesus Christ well, profitably,
1: and good. Yeah, the, you know, the church throughout throughout the course of history has kind of identified or, or given St. Thomas a number of different titles to, mm. to sort of synthesize this. And, and the earliest one really is that he, he's known as the common doctor, not common in the sort of like basic sense, but like, you know, he's he not going to brunch on morphos. Sundays, yeah, yeah. Exactly. you know, but common in the sense of um, <laughs> universally... Um, usable if if that's I don't know if that's the most eloquent way to put it, but um that his that his theology is, the breadth of his theology touches and speaks to the breadth of the faith in ways that are um coherent and cohesive and um yeah accessible to, to sort of all corners there. He's also been titled um the angelic the angelic doctor. Um I'm not exactly sure Father Gregory Say something about the angelic doctor title. Totes
0: magos. I'll say things related to this. I don't know mm. the exact reason as to why, but I have guesses, and now I'm yeah, going I'm, to give I'm them.
1: Yeah, I'm the same. So your guesses are better than mine, so you guess. Guess so, away.
0: So let's see. St. Thomas was born in 1225, we said, and he was kind of identified by his parents as a good candidate for being a monk because they wanted him to end up being the abbot at Monte Cassino, which was a very influential abbey there in their region around Naples. And so at the age of five, he was sent as a boy oblate to... Uh, that monastery, Um, some charming stories told about that time, that that he would toddle around and ask the brothers, what is God? Or that he one time had a piece of paper balled up in his hand and somebody finally wrested it from his grasp and it turns out that it was, uh, uh, it just had the two words Ave Maria. So charming stories told from that time, but I'm actually getting to my point. I'll just wind my way there. He was there until he was 14 and then he went to the University of Naples where he encountered the Dominicans and he said, I want to become a Dominican friar. I don't want to become an influential abbot. I want to join this outfit of men who want to love the Lord and preach. But his family got wind of it and they were having none of it. And so they kept him on house arrest effectively for about a year. And during that time, his brothers Landolf and Reynald, or Reynaldo, they wanted to break St. Thomas's resolve to be a Dominican friar. And they thought the best way to go about it was to kind of get him off his high horse. And so it's said that they introduced a harlot or like a prostitute into his room uh, so as to tempt him. And they were thinking that if he fell in chastity, he would give up the whole evangelical perfection vision. So St. Thomas saw the, the prostitute come into the room. He was awakened. And then he serenely went over to the fire and took out a brand from the fire, escorted the woman out the door, and then burned a cross on the door. And then he went and knelt at his bedside. And it said that he was girded about by two angels. Um, and they, they girded him in effectively like a, a cord of chastity. And from that moment, St. Thomas was never again tempted... In purity and chastity, which really enabled him to think with such clarity and with such constancy and with such abstraction about very, very weighty matters or deep matters. Um, and so St. Thomas shows his his high octane thinking power, especially in one of the treatises in the Summa Theologiae dedicated to the angels. So St. Thomas has this whole, you know, he has all these questions dedicated to the angels. It's like, question, in, the, in the first part, it's like questions 50 through, I don't know, 64, and then he picks them up again like questions 106 until near the end, 119. And he's, he's playing out all the implications of the biblical revelation about angels, but it's as if he himself were an angel because so intuitive, so clear is his gaze that he is almost like the very things that he describes. So those would be uh, a, couple, a couple guesses, educated guesses, I hope,
1: but a couple guesses as to why he might be called the angelic doctor. Perfect. Thomas, the angelic doctor. We're going to take a break for just a minute. Stay tuned and we will be right back.
0: This is Godsplaining. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at org slash godsplaining.
1: Okay, welcome back to this episode of Godsplaining. We are uh, talking about the man, the myth, the legend, St. Thomas Aquinas, whose feast day was just two days ago. Uh, we were We were talking about Thomas sort of his his place in history, his contribution to um, theological thought and the church's uh, theological tradition, and uh, just before we took a break, we were talking about Thomas as he's known as the Common Doctor and the Angelic Doctor, and those certainly t- are the the two um, I don't know common names that Thomas receives. Uh, it's common titles, but a, a third title, um, a more modern title that that Thomas has. Received has come from uh, Saint John Paul II in in the late '90s. Um, Saint John Paul II called Thomas the Doctor Humanitatis, or the Doctor of Humanity, because uh, Saint John Paul II looked at say, or you know, in reading Aquinas's works and looking at the way in which Saint Thomas teaches and what he offers, saw and recognized in Thomas's thought. Um, an ability uh, uh, to to understand the human person, an ability to understand how it is that we're created, why we're created um, in the image and likeness of God, what it is that we're made for and how we're redeemed in Christ. And in John Paul II's mind, Thomas provides this sort of foundation um, on which, I don't know, this probably isn't true, but I'm going to say it, on which he, he sort of expounded and was able to expound, you know, sat in that tradition of, you know, that, that, on which he built his thought in the theology of the of the body and understanding understanding man. Certainly um, not exclusively Thomas, but the foundation there, you yeah. know, the inspiration there. I think too, like Saint Thomas' role, I should say,
0: Saint Paul II shows his appreciation for Saint Thomas, especially in the encyclical letter Fides et Ratio. And many people have read it and certainly benefit from it. And it begins with that iconic line that. The human spirit mounts up to the consideration of the contemplation of God on the two wings of faith and reason. But you see there um, a similar understanding of St. Thomas's genius as is present in his identification of him as Dr. Humanitatis. Because St. Thomas knows what is in the heart of man in the way that Christ does, and as much as he participates in the grace of Christ and has kind of keen insight by virtue of his wisdom into all things of God, but that he sees how that corresponds with the supernatural order. So St. Thomas is able to make the distinction between nature and grace, not so as to keep them at arm's length or to hold them apart, but rather to show how grace heals and elevates nature, is deeply coherent with nature, how nature in a certain sense calls for it, right? Not in a strict sense, but by a kind of receptiveness to this this further perfection. And so St. Thomas, in being sensitive or being alive to, to what is in man also has a greater appreciation for how very deeply God's revelation and God's gift of his own divine life corresponds with our hearts. So sometimes you'll hear in different religious traditions a kind of violence when it, when it, when it concerns how God interacts with, uh, with the human person. And, and some of that can be very attractive. Literarily, you think of you know Flannery O'Connor, or you think about maybe the 17th and 18th century French tradition can sometimes be a little bit hard-hitting. But St. Thomas has this very gentle approach whereby God not does not so much overthrow man or undo him as he heals him and elevates him and draws him gradually by stages into the divine life. So, I mean, a lot can be said for St. Thomas's theological insights. He's not just a hack. He's not just repeating things that people have said before in, you know, novel ways. Rather, he's really synthesizing the tradition and interiorizing it in such a way that he builds upon it and he can enunciate it in such a way that... Uh, yeah, we can really stand to benefit
1: from his wisdom. So here's um, perhaps a little a little devil's advocate for you, Father Gregory. Right? I'm so Saint Thomas, this medieval scholastic who divided, you know, the, who who sort of dwelt in the land of the speculative and has, you know, no engagement with with the practical or sort of pastoral theology. Mm. Um, all of those things, I think, are are not true. Maybe. Um, no, certainly, but um, <laughs> perhaps, you know, the question though, so what, it, in, in your estimation, what is, is perhaps even, even a step before that, is St. Thomas, his thought, his theology, um, you know, relevant in the church some 1,200 years later? Um, of course, popes have acclaimed him, you know, various encyclicals and documents have recognized his um sort of theological masterpieces and the foundation that he lays but great in a sense like who cares what does that mean for for you know catholics living in 2020 who are you know attempting to seek the lord does thomas have a place in sort of popular piety or in sort of the intellectual world that we're in now within the church
0: yeah so you think about the fact you know st thomas we said was born in 1225 so we're five years away from celebrating the 800th anniversary of his birth and it's staggering how very contemporary his insights are. You can think about this from a number of advantages, but just just compare it to other things proper to that time. Think about the oldest novel you've ever read. <clears throat> For some of us, well, it depends how you classify a novel, but, you know, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales or, you know, Cervantes' Don Quixote. I mean, even just think about a novel from 150 years ago. Oftentimes, it's really hard to identify with the characters or to sympathize with their humanity or to, to gain a deep appreciation for what it is that the author's doing because he seems to be living a life that's so very different from our own. And as a result of which, it seemed, even if it's been translated into our language, it seems, it seems hard for us to establish a common dialogue or a common conversation. Whereas my experience of reading St. Thomas Aquinas is that once you put in the work of learning the vocabulary, you know, there's maybe 25 terms that you got to get a good grasp on, and then you put in the time of learning the grammar, right? So, his, his theological style is not written in a, is in a modern idiom. But having done that legwork, what you find is that his, his insights are incredibly contemporary. So just to take one, for instance. St. Thomas talks very often, or he talks very clearly, about sacramental causality. For St. Thomas, sacraments are real causes of grace. <clears throat> so you can describe causality in any number of ways. But for St. Thomas, the sacraments aren't magic, but provided they are received with faith... They attain to their end. They actually accomplish their end. So the sign mediates a grace, and it actually gives the grace and makes the person who receives it to be holy. So you can think about the sacrament of confession. The first effect of the sacrament of confession is contrition. So even if you come with like attrition or imperfect contrition, the sacrament itself perfects your sorrow and hatred of sin, but then it goes beyond that and remits those sins and then it applies a salutary penance to atone for the temporal punishments associated with that sin. So you have a sign, namely, you know, the exchange of sins and the the annunciation uh, of the form of absolution, and that actually achieves an end. And the way that St. Thomas explains it accounts better than anything else for the fact that some people experience real growth in their lives. So how do you account for the fact that some people get better when practically Everyone in the world right now is either stuck plateauing or devolving into some state of moral torpor or some morass of, you know, moral conflict. But some people actually get better. They actually get more free. They actually get more charitable. And and it's not just a mere matter of their own pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. There's something that's going on with prayer. There's something that's going on with the sacraments. And when you read St. Thomas, you have a vocabulary and a grammar for explaining how something like that is even possible. So... I mean, that's just one example, and you can enumerate tons of them. I know you have affinity for St. Thomas's liturgical contemporaneity. Is there something about that that you
1: think is especially apropos? Yeah, yeah. Often, you know, one another, perhaps criticism that Thomas often receives is his sort of, you know, if you're reading, if you're reading the Summa, it is, it can be dry in a sense. You know, it's, it's not, it's not it's not reading St. Augustine, it's not the confessions, it's not reading sort of modern literature, it's not a novel, you know, it's a scholastic, um, work of theology. So there, there it's a particular style that doesn't always convey the most excitement. It's not a Dan Brown novel. Uh, and, and that can, yeah, that, 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 that can lead to some criticism that Thomas, you know, as I said before, sort of divorced from the pastoral, there, there's the coldness there, there's a, a sort of aloofness there with respect to, you know, it, the, the living of the faith and, um, I say, nay-nay, a la John <laughs> Panette, you know, nay-nay. Uh, and, and I think the example par excellence here is, is looking at Thomas's, um, Thomas's poetry, Really, so in in 1264, Pope Urban IV instituted the Feast of Corpus Christi, the Feast of the Body and Blood of of Jesus Christ, as a universal feast day for the Church, and he appealed to Saint Thomas to basically write the liturgy uh, for that. and And what we have, what we, what has come down through the tradition, are uh, in, is really in the form of hymns. So the sequence for uh, for the Mass that's chanted before the Alleluia, before the Gospel Thomas is written, but the, perhaps more popularly when we think of adoration, the hymns that we sing during adoration, the Tantum Ergo, the O Salutaris, um, the Adorote, another Eucharistic hymn, um, the Panja Lingua, the Panis Angelicus, all of these were penned by the hand of St. Thomas. And they they convey they betray portray whatever word we want to use a heart that is undivided a heart that is is so enamored and so in love with Christ and and our lord in the eucharist um that he is moved to write these words that you know so many of us can you know know by heart and can sing and are, and are really moved when we hear them they're sort of like classic um catholic like theme songs you know the tantomero every it's just just part and parcel of, of, of sort of Catholic life. Um, and I think you can find in his other writings, but particularly here, a sort of window into, into the heart of Thomas, into the sort of the, uh, the passionate kind of um, head-over-heels uh, devotion and love that he has for our Lord. So
0: I think that that, that brings before my mind another note of St. Thomas's Contemporaneity, namely that he shows how prayer and theology come together, or how they're meant to be practiced together. Because Saint Thomas is a contemplative; he's not a philosopher, he's not just a theologian, he's not just a religious or a priest or you know somebody who offers worship in the context of liturgical prayer. He's all of those things, and all of those things contribute to what is for him a contemplative life. So his principal consideration from start to finish is who is God and who are you, Lord, who reveal yourself. In history who reveal yourself in worship who reveal yourself in your you know in your son your most beloved son Jesus Christ and his life is trained on the consideration of those things so you see in these Eucharistic hymns how very passionate he is about that pursuit but you can you can also think about the fact that the last theological treatise that st. Thomas completed was his treatise on the Eucharist in the Summa Theologiae which is you know the end of the third part questions 73 through 83 and once he started The treatise on on confession, he he didn't complete it. So the last thing that he finished was on the Eucharist, and it was said that during that treatise, when he would encounter difficult problems, he would go before the Blessed Sacrament in the church, and he would actually lean his, his head on the tabernacle, beseeching the Lord for answers, beseeching the Lord for lights and insights. So for him, it's not so much, you know, a matter of doing theology on the one hand and being a prayer warrior on the other. It's a matter of being a contemplative, and you see how all of these streams run together into the the very rich tide of love for the Lord in St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, so, yeah.
1: Sort of wrapping up, getting towards the end of our time here, we could go on for hours about St. Thomas, probably. Um, other people might get bored of that before we do. But <laughs> what are what are um, some things? So we, we've talked about Thomas, the man. Thomas is sort of um, offering in, in the church's history and where he stands in the church's history. Thomas in sort of the heart of Thomas. But what do you think... How is it that we in 2020 might be able to learn, approach Thomas well, learn about him, use him, use his thought in um, for for those who might not be um, trained in a you know the school of Thomism who might not have gone to the House of Studies. What are some options that sure, people yeah. have to to get to know him? So I think yeah,
0: some people have the impression that St. Thomas wrote the Summa. The Summa is impossible to read. Therefore, I will never read Thomas. I wouldn't worry about that so much. I think. The, first, the best thing is just to, to read St. Thomas, but in an idiom that we can appreciate, in an idiom uh, that we can absorb. So a great place to start is the Aquinas Prayer Book, which is published by Sophia Press, just to gain a basic appreciation for his prayer life and to repeat those prayers as we beseech the Lord. And then to read some of his more simple theological treatises. So you can read one that's called uh, the Light of Faith, also published by Sophia. That's a translation of the Compendium of Theology, which is like a short summa. You can read another one that's called The Three Greatest Prayers. I think it might have also been published under the name The Aquinas Catechism, also by Sophia. And that's a translation of his commentaries on the Creed, the Our Father, and the Hail Mary. So those are very accessible, very beautiful, but it gives you a taste for his theological style, but in a way that's more popular because, you know, some of those things are, are, there are themselves sermons. Um, and then another great place to go is St. Thomas's scripture commentaries. So the one that I think a lot of people find most approachable is called the Catena Aurea. That's not him theologizing, it's him collecting thoughts from different fathers of the church and councils of the church um, and stringing them together for the four gospels. But that's great to read, especially when you're trying to dig up the sense of a passage or just hear what other Christians have said about it. Um, so I think those are, those are some good places to start. I don't want to overwhelm the airwaves with too many things, but yeah, start by reading St. Thomas and you'll find that, uh, he's a good friend and a trusted guide.
1: And, and perhaps another, you know, make a little pitch here, another little tool that might be worthwhile. You're, you're checking out the, uh, the Thomistic Institute. This is in Father Gregory's <laughs> Realm is, is working on uh, Aquinas 101, uh, a video series on reading the Summa. Maybe say a word about that just briefly. <laughs> yeah,
0: people. sure. So it's, um, it's a video series that we began in September and we've been releasing two videos a week. And they're short, and they're animated, and they're attractive. And then they come accompanied with, with some readings from St. Thomas that you can choose to read or not. But at the very least, to watch the videos. Uh, the first six are dedicated to who St. Thomas is and why he's important. And then there's 20 dedicated to his basic philosophical vocabulary. And then an additional 60 that just take you by the hand and walk you through the Summa. And they're all done by friars from this house uh, who love St. Thomas and who have sat at his feet and, I pray God, have been formed by his mind. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a really... it's It's about halfway through at this point, and I think it's come off really well, and there's like 21,000 people who are signed up and are following the course, so it's proved fruitful for quite a number.
1: Great. Well, thanks all for tuning in. Um, If you didn't know who St. Thomas was, now you know a little bit. If you did know who St. Thomas was, now you know a little bit more. Uh, You know, one of the beautiful things about the saints of the church and the saints for us of our order is that they're not simply sort of historical figures that we kind of can reminisce about, but really, you know, our dear friends and and fathers in the faith and in the life. So um, hopefully we've kind of conveyed our, our love and admiration for the saint and hopefully, you can appreciate that too in your own life that St. Thomas can become a guide, not simply as, as, as a theological kind of teacher, but as, as, a, as, a, as a friend and as um, an intercessor in heaven. So please share this episode, subscribe to God's planning, share it with a friend, send it to those who you, you might think would benefit. Um, check out Aquinas 101. And for now, that's all. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.